Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, this is John Lantos from the Children's Mercy Hospital Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Welcome back to our pediatric ethics podcast. We've been focusing a lot on the ethical issues surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, and we're thrilled to have with us today Dr. George Hardart. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and bioethics at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, the epicenter of this pandemic in the United States and perhaps now in the world. Dr. Hardart is board certified in pediatrics, pediatric critical care, and anesthesia, and is an attending physician in the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit at the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital there at Columbia. He's also a chair or past chair of the Pediatric Ethics Committee and served on the Pediatric Ventilator Allocation Working Group of the New York State Task Force for Life and the Law. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Harder. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what the last month has been like there in New York City? It's, it's been obviously pretty extraordinary. Um, and it really, it's, it's, it, it, I know for many people, it feels as if we're uh, coming out of the woods, but we're still very much in the middle of the woods. So this is in essence, a, a, a midstream uh, debrief and discussion of mm-hmm. it all. Um, to give you my context, uh, at Columbia Medical Center is part of New York Presbyterian Hospital, which is the largest healthcare system in New York, is eight 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 large hospitals. Uh, the two largest being Columbia University Medical Center and uh, Weill Cornell Medical Center. Mm-hmm. So, an enormous hospital system, and we are the largest children's hospital within that. And that's that's the context for for this uh, for the experience we've had and. It really began in New York um, in, in mid-March, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, we had our first COVID-positive pediatric patient on March 13th, uh, and really our experience has been similar in the in the children's hospital has been similar to the experience around the world, which is very thankfully it's not a it's not a pediatric disease. How many kids have you had admitted, more more or less? Yeah, we've had, I, I'm not really keeping a formal tally. Currently, uh, today's snapshot in our unit, we have probably four or five minor patients that mm-hmm. have uh, COVID. And that's about the highest it's been. It hasn't been more than five or six minor patients during that span. Uh, and I would say since, the, since around March 20th, it's been uh, around that kind of a census. And, and you, put the, you have to put that in context with um, the adult experience is extraordinary. Um, New York Presbyterian expanded from about 300, 350 ICU beds to 750, more than wow. a doubling of ICU beds. And hmm. those are all full of adults with, with COVID. Wow. So 700, 750 patients at a time. And five ICU patients, five minor patients with COVID. That's that's the experience. And 
And fortunately for us, the outcome for um, these minor patients with it has been quite good. So as part of the context for us at the Children's Hospital is that very, very thankfully, um, children themselves have been really largely spared. So are you taking adults in the PICU? Absolutely. Uh, it's an interesting part of our story. Uh, I would say New York Presbyterian Hospital, the leadership has been has handled things really, really wonderfully. Um, it's been inspiring to see how they've done it. One of the major steps they took in the in the second half, half of March is to close down all of, of Cornell Pediatrics while Cornell Pediatrics closed. And they hmm. turned those beds and that pediatric ICU into adult beds uh, that okay. are being managed, at least in part, by my my brethren down at, at New York Hospital are, are taking care of adult patients in the pediatric ICU. So okay. we absorbed all of the children from the New York Presbyterian system and expanded our pediatric ICU accordingly. And we didn't know how, how much of our um, capacity was going to be needed for, for minors during that period. But it became very clear as the month came to a close, March came to a close, that we were going to have substantial ability to, to admit adults. And that is how it's played out. In, in April, our, our pediatric ICU, which expanded from 42 to 54 beds, as we've, we've probably averaged an average, uh, averaged uh, approximately anywhere from 14 to 22 adults in our unit at any point in time, which has been obviously very, very different than our normal um, Function. One of the discussions that's been taking place uh, among bioethicists has to do with scope of practice and whether pediatricians have the skills to take care of adults. Has that been an issue that's come up there? It it has only insofar as uh, drawing limits and as to how old and how complicated the adults uh, we would take would be. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a plan as we began this, uh, we, it's, it's been an evolving process. And I think it's fairly natural that it happened that way. I mean, first we started to take people in their 20s. Right. Um, then we started to take people in their 30s. Now we're taking people uh, up to 52 years old is our oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's an interesting, it, it's an interesting experience as a, as a, pediatric intensivist, we take care of people up to 18 years of age, of course, um, as, as a routine matter. And physiologically, mm-hmm. if you consider an 18-year-old and somebody until they start to gather adult morbidities, uh, they're fairly similar human beings to take care of. And it's played out that way. Uh, we have tried to avoid people with very um, specifically specific to uh, adults and elderly individuals, coronary artery disease, for example. We haven't taken anybody with coronary artery disease. We have taken plenty of people with um, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, obesity, uh, uh, chronic renal disease. Things that you're more familiar with from the adolescent population. Correct, correct. So I think, you know, as you, as you know, Don, I mean, 
the idea as you surge and and come up with contingency capacity, the first hope is that you can maintain a good standard of care in, in delivering what you want. And and I feel that we have very much been able to do that. And it's borne out by the fact that uh, our staff has been very, very comfortable. And again, another inspiring part of this is how our, particularly our nursing staff, but all of our staff, respiratory therapists, you, you name it down the line, have unflinchingly taken on taking uh, caring for adults in these very trying circumstances and not hesitated, not really been um, feeling as if they're providing inadequate care at all. Uh, and, and our outcomes have been outstanding. outstanding. That's great. So I think we're, it, it, it reflects that we have um, that, that we're, um, we're competent at taking care of these individuals. It also reflects the fact that the younger adults are going to tend to do better anyway. So I'm not at all saying that we are doing better than our adult colleagues um, in our adult hospital. We, we, they're giving us their best patients. Have you been surprised by any particular ethical issues that have arisen through this saga? I think so. Um, the, from an ethical standpoint, you know, I, as you mentioned, I was part of the New York State working group that created our guidelines for ventilator allocation. This, of mm-hmm. course, was born out of the H1N1 influenza epidemic in 2009. And whenever you make a plan uh, <laughs> for a disaster, you're always planning for the last disaster, not the next right. disaster, you know, as part of it. Uh, I, I can yep. tell you that the Dwight Eisenhower quote about um, planning is essential, but plans are useless uh, <laughs> applies to this as it typically does. Um, the the plans that we crafted in 2015 were to allocate ventilators because we figured that would be the shortage right. for the next viral pandemic. And it's the, the interesting ethical part of it, John, the surprising ethical aspect is that as the surge capacity expanded, and we've all seen it played out in the media, how, how the, eventually the federal government and the state government and a giant hospital system like ours has expanded capacity and try to optimally use all resources. Um, we haven't gotten into that crisis of having literally too few ventilators and literally mm-hmm. had to make the choice between this patient or that patient who would get it. It has been not an absolute shortage of resources. It's been much more of a relative shortage of resources. So, um, and this is, I, I am part of the, the broader hospital, the, the, the adult hospital view of this. Uh, the, the interesting part of it is uh, without that absolute shortage of ventilators, it's been such a challenge to define, are, are we in a crisis condition where we're providing inadequate, a lower standard of care, which kind of defines crisis conditions right. uh, as we stretch our nursing resources from Mm -hmm. two to one nursing care to three to one uh, nurse to patient ratios to four to one. Mm -hmm. What, what is that doing to the quality of care? We're not absolutely short on nurses, but we're stretching them thinner and thinner. And that has been an interesting aspect of this. We didn't at all plan for, uh, 
for those relative shortages. Is that, is that partly because nurses are getting sick and getting infected or, or, or just because of an absolute scarcity? It is, it is, it is both. Mm-hmm. I don't know the numbers of, of, uh, of what, what fraction of the nursing worse for, workforce has had to take time off for, uh, for illness. Uh, but, but we have quite literally more than doubled the ICU capacity of, of our hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that has been at least, at least half of the issue has just been an absolute need for more ICU nurses. And many other nurses have stepped up and, and uh, tried to fill the gap. So nurses without specific ICU training have been uh, covering shifts there? They, uh, I, I don't want to speak for, um, I'm, I'm not there. I know in, okay. in, they, they are surging to, you know, to draw physicians and, and other healthcare staff into positions that they have not done before. Right. Uh, what percentage? What percentage aren't ICU trained? I don't know. They have tried to um, at many other uh, institutions, like I believe Cleveland Clinic famously has offered to send a substantial cadre of ICU nurses to to fill the gap. So they've they've tried to um, again, a- according to the the good professional and ethical approach to this, to optimally utilize all resources and and draw excess from outside, uh, they've done that here. I don't know how much they've been able to fill. Uh, but, but I do know that our nursing ratios, uh, which, as, as you know, John, should be in an ideal world, uh, no more than one nurse to one patient or uh, one nurse to two patients. That's the, the standard for, um, for an ICU. Right. Uh, but it's been one nurse for three and four patients. Uh, which is outside the standard of care. Is it functionally equivalent or does it fall below the standard of care? That's the, that's the ethical surprise for me that we've mm-hmm. had to confront that. And, in, and another a very important similar situation is with dialysis. That has come up more in the last week or two. And what we've attempted to do to avoid needing to choose which patient gets dialysis is what our teams have done is to use one dialysis machine normally in the ICU that's given continuously 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what they've done is use it one machine on, on one patient for 12 hours, take it off that patient, give it to another patient for 12 hours. So it's not ideal, Mm -hmm. but it's enabled them to avoid that absolute shortage situation. It's interesting that most of the plans that people worked so hard on for allocating scarce resources during a crisis did not seem to anticipate bending the rules in these ways. Uh, more attention was given to discrete things like a ventilator where one patient would get it and the other one wouldn't. But this is more of a gray zone. It is. I, I have called it a gray zone. I have used the analogy of bending and not breaking. I've more used it this quasi-crisis condition situation that we've been in. And it is ethically and professionally important because as, as the Institute of Medicine uh, laid it out um, around the time of H1N1, it's a very critical step for a state 
to declare a crisis standard of care. That mm-hmm. unlocks a whole um, institutional, legal a set of standards for allocating resources that doesn't exist under conventional circumstances. And so if you're in this quasi-crisis state, this, this gray zone state, where, what is the trigger to declare those crisis conditions? If you go from three to one nursing to four to one nursing, should the state declare a crisis condition because outcomes are falling? How do you just make that decision? The doctors must also be carrying a bigger caseload, isn't it? Again, I have, I have nothing but the greatest respect for, for as a way New York Presbyterian has handled this and the, and the staff in the adult hospital. It's been remarkable. And the way, mm-hmm. they've, the way they've done it, and I think they've done, a, they've done it as good a job as, as, as humanly possible, is one intensivist um, is more like a super intensivist now. So if the normal is to have maybe 12 patients or 14 patients, they now are covering more like 40 patients, but they have below them other very experienced physicians that aren't ICU physicians, but are very experienced, good physicians who are their extenders. They may be managing, you know, a subset of those patients and Mm -hmm. they're getting um, important oversight from the intensive care physician. And frankly, John, that's similar to the way we're doing it with our adult patients in our children's hospital, where um, every day we have a consult from the adult medical intensivist. So Mm -hmm. every day we have a discussion with them because they're adults and we want to optimize their care. And our adult intensivists have been just wonderful colleagues in helping us to uh, deliver the goods. And I think in a much more active way, they're doing that when they, for their own patients to, 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 to supply all of their critical care needs. It's also been true that the ventilator management of COVID patients has been uh, unusual, I guess, or not uh, typical of other patients with respiratory failure. Uh, have you had surprises uh, in that regard where people are sort of figuring out how to do this as they go along? It is, I can tell you, let me, I'll just tell you from our experience in the children's hospital taking care of children and people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. As I mentioned, we've had very good outcomes. And in large measure, they have behaved as, uh, as is often the case for ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, uh, Patients, they've, I, I've said it time and time again, they, they seem to have read the book hmm. on how an okay. ARDS patient should act and react to the treatment we give them. You're, you're correct, John, though, that the, the, a, a, a lot of what's in the media and in the medical literature is that they are um, importantly different in some ways. And I don't know if that's possibly more relevant for the older population. Mm-hmm. Um, it is somewhat, it gets a little too, a um, little medical here, but um, the, uh, they, they are, I think they're, well, they're seeing in a tremendous inflammatory condition in these patients. Um, and that could be part of the reason that they are needing more uh, blood pressure support medications, but it could also be that they, their lung disease is, is different in certain ways 
the lungs remain more compliant and therefore there's more blood pressure impact on the on the ventilator support we give but for for in our pediatric experience in our young adult experience they responded beautifully to traditional ARDS management. Okay, that's good. Has there been a citywide coordination of uh, the bioethicists uh, in response to this? There had, there has been coordination. Beautiful. I, it's a, it's a, there's been beautiful coordination, I would say, within our very large uh, eight hospital organization. Okay. Uh, it, it's a nice it's a nice feature of this uh, sometimes unwieldy large super hospital is that the, the command and control structure for a crisis like this was, was just readily in place. So mm-hmm. we could optimize the use of this large system that has worked beautifully. Uh, the, the structure for a city and state coordination, um, it hasn't been, with coordination among bioethicists. Okay. The way it has played out is that our bioethicists uh, within the New York Presbyterian system have been in very close uh, communication daily uh, and with senior leadership of the hospital on the administrative side. And that structure leads to direct communication with both city leadership and state leadership. Uh, and so it isn't the sort of thing where um, bioethicists are are um, meeting together and communicating directly to city and state leadership. It is occurring more through hospital leadership. But I believe it's being it's been very effective. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about the issues of uh, keeping families away from critically ill or dying patients. Have there been uh, controversies or problems about that? I can tell you that that, that idea of uh, not having visitors present for adult patients has been one very, very striking and uh, heart-wrenching experience for the healthcare providers mm-hmm. um, and obviously for the the patients and families themselves. Sure. Um, it, uh, it, I think it's from an, it's seen as a public health necessity. And so mm-hmm. therefore as heart wrenching as it is, what people have just attempted to do is make the best of the situation and use a lot of technology to try to, um, uh, use FaceTime, uh, and such to, let family members get a get a sense of what their loved ones are experiencing. For many of these patients, uh, when they're in the ICUs, they are uh, very deeply sedated. So the the stress uh, and the uh, sadness is m- very often on the part of the family member who wants to be with their loved one and experience mm-hmm. experience it with them and help. And that's that's been very hard for um, everyone involved. Also, also family members play, a, ICU doctors know this, play a very important role at the bedside as well. Um, they, they function as a, often as a nurse extender and their lack of presence there uh, probably does put more stress on the nursing staff and, and the physician staff as well. So it's- Yeah, they, it's they help a lot with quality. They, 
They do. They do. For pediatric, for minors, uh, the standard has still been to allow one uh, family member to to stay with the child. So that is a difference in that we do limit it to only one, but that is obviously a world better than no presence at all. And the hospital must be all COVID all the time. What's happening to people with uh, other health problems? It is, uh, it's exactly true, John, that it is that all COVID all the time. As I mentioned, our, our children's hospital is now functioning uh, basically as two children's hospitals since the large, excellent Weill Cornell pediatric program um, is closed for the moment. And yet the volume we've seen in our ICU has been so surprisingly low. Hmm. I think what people have referred to is there's, there are clearly fewer injuries occurring. Yep. And probably because of social distancing, there are, there are fewer other uh, communicable viral illnesses occurring. And that, that often, whether you have lung disease or heart disease or you name it, it is a interceding viral illness that can lead to a cardiac patient needing to be hospitalized. Yeah. So, uh, for a myriad of reasons, it is, it's just very interesting and, and, and lucky and helpful that the other diseases have led to fewer hospitalizations. Probably lower pollution levels lead to less asthma as well. <laughs> it probably is true. Absolutely. Um, well, we need to wrap up. Any, any final comments on lessons learned? You started by saying we're always planning for the last pandemic, um, Anything we can take yeah. forward from this one that might help with the next one? We're working on that now. We will be ready for the next COVID-19 <laughs> outbreak. <laughs> I will tell you that. I noticed that after H1N1, it only took about six years to develop the guidelines for allocating <laughs> ventilators. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and New York was, was uh, you know, at least not behind the curve on that. Right. Some hospitals just, just devised theirs in this in this during the current crisis. One thing yeah. that was interesting, I don't want to uh, draw things out, but was very interesting is that in, in planning for an, a ventilator shortage in, in even in our hospital system, uh, we started taking the proper steps, which is to form triage committees. We came up with a different name for it, but we started to form triage committees if we had to make those difficult decisions, we needed to have those teams in place. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea for those unfamiliar with it is you don't want bedside doctors to have to decide uh, to take the ventilator away from the patient they've been caring for. Um, instead, it's moved one level away, one higher level away to a triage committee that has the broader picture in mind and mm -hmm. is, uh, doesn't have responsibility for that individual patient. So. So our hospital went through the steps of forming the committees, but they didn't include any triage committees for the pediatric patients, hmm. which, which is an oversight because in, if allocation decisions were going to be made, according to the New York State guidelines, children are, children are part of those allocation decisions. A, a minor with a poor outcome uh, poor prognosis um, is, is at risk for having their 
ventilator taken from them. And it was an interesting part of this uh, that, that because the focus was so much on adults that they formed triage committees for the adult hospital, but not for the pediatric hospital. So that is one of the, one of the few things I think that going forward we will have learned um, is that you need to have really a, a 360 view of, of incorporating patients with the target disease, whether it's COVID or the next thing, with and without the target disease and across all age groups uh, to, to do the work of fairly allocating the resources. Yeah, I know there's been some discussion even of taking vents out of uh, neonatal intensive care units if they're needed. So uh, I if think they, you know, if the new outcomes, sets of guidelines are going to address yeah. that. And, and New, York, new York State did come up with, uh, New York State did a, 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 a quite good job of, of preparing for the last pandemic because we have specific neonatal guidelines and specific pediatric guidelines. Um, but then within all having those different guidelines, every, everybody's at risk if they, yeah. um, if they can't benefit the most from the intervention, whether it's a ventilator or, or other, to, to give it to someone else. Well, George, thanks so much for taking the time. It sounds like your life is uh, crazy. We've been talking here to George Hardart, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Bioethics at Columbia University Medical Center, former chair of their Pediatric Ethics Committee and a member of the New York State Task Force of Life and the Laws Pediatric Ventilator Allocation Working Group. I'm John Lantos from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Thanks again, George, for doing this. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you.